Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. I am Adam Hopalong Thomas. And uh, along with us is our guest from the Horror Remix episode, Shaquille Lambert. Shaquille, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I haven't been decapitated by a giant shitty lion head, but I'm good. The night is young uh, for, <laughs> for that to happen. Um, but, you know, we're out of the October season. I know we're all sad. Halloween's come and gone by the time this episode's airing. Now but, we're getting assaulted by Christmas. <laughs> immediately. But first, we're going to assault you all with the topic of the week, which um, in honor of not this week, but the week after releasing this, uh, we've got a new film from the Coen Brothers coming. Yes, uh, on Netflix, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the anthology western they're doing is coming out which I'm very curious about, um, especially because that was supposed to be a TV show originally, and then they turned it into an anthology movie. Which is, that's what makes me a little bit nervous about it. I mean, yeah, admittingly. <laughs> but look, yeah. yeah, I mean, potentially. But then again, that stacked cast, and even like them doing an anthology, they've never done that before, technically. So right. I'd be curious. I it's, mean, and it's the, it's the fucking Coens. Yes. I mean, pretty much everything they touch is gold. No, for sure. Yeah, two of the greatest uh, currently working American filmmakers, obviously. There's so many great films we could list, and few bad ones. Enough to do this show, necessarily. But, uh, Shaquille, are you a fan of the Coens? Honestly, I think they're a big blind spot for me, but the stuff that I have seen, I very much have enjoyed. Uh, I won't say them because I, I'm not sure if I'll end up picking them or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And yeah, uh, for, those yeah, of you, that's fair. for those of you who don't know, this is maybe your first night uh on the double edge double bill uh basically adam and i come to the table with two movies each we alternate between good and bad quality for those two movies i've got two good movies adam's got two bad movies based around the coen brothers filmography uh we don't know what the other has picked but each of us has assigned each of our movies two numbers between one and ten and usually each of us would select number between one and ten in order to get close to the other's movies for both good and bad. But when we have a guest like Shaquille, he gets uh, the point and stick and gets to point at which particular movie gets picked at random. So Shaquille, for my two good movies, number between one and ten. Uh, you will get the number three. Okay. At number four, I had uh, one of their more underrated films, 1991's Barton Fink. Ooh, okay. God, that's such a good movie. What was your other one? My other one was at number eight. I had, I think, another underrated one, but more recent, um, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Okay, okay. Now, I'm very curious about this with the two bad films. So, Shaquille, for his... rough. Yes, for his (laughs) two bad films. You will get the number one. At number three, actually, I had The Lady Killers. There it is. Oh, boy. <laughs> I knew that was going to be it. <laughs> oh, boy. 
What was the at, other one? At number seven, I had A Serious Man. I'll say that now that you guys have listed everything, the ones I've seen are The Big Lebowski, obviously, mm-hmm. um, No Country for Old Men, and mm-hmm. True Grit. Those are the only three that I've seen in full that I great, very great much movies. enjoy all three of them. Yeah. And the other two that I've seen in part were Burn After Reading, which I've mm-hmm. seen in chunks, and also The Lady Killers, which I've seen part of. And I'm like, this. I don't hate The Lady Killers, but I'm like, this is this is not great. Nah, it's not. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> You're not, you seem very unenthused. <laughs> the thing is about Serious Man is I haven't heard good or bad. I've heard nothing about it. I've mostly heard like very divisive things. That's one of the more divisive movies. And honestly, I would have been more curious for that just because I remember not liking it the first time. But with the Coen brothers, admittingly, they're filmmakers where I usually like something more each time I see their movies. I get a lot more appreciation from multiple viewings. And... Maybe Lady Killers a little bit. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Maybe watch it come back and be like, yo, listen, I was totally wrong about this. This movie uh, this, is fantastic. This is an underrated American classic that people just <laughs> don't see. Also, a remake. That's true, yes. We'll get into all that in a second. But first, our farewells to Shaquille, real quick. A little few stabbing plugs out of Shaquille. Yes, hey, yeah. Shaq Excellence is is my username on pretty much everything. Also, go to oneofus.net. Go w- listen to Screener Squad and Eye on the Prize. Also, occasionally on The Breakfast Pub. I forgot to mention that in the last plug. But yeah, I'm also on that. And also, go to Talk Film Society and go listen to sequels. That's our direct-to-video podcast. Really fucking funny. Go check that out. And yeah. Now, uh, we got a double feature to watch, Adam. So we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, then. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. Is that more than one thing? Okay. Oh, you'll lick this picture business, believe me. You got a head on your shoulders. And what is it they say? Where there's a head, there's hope. Nate? LAPD. Got some questions we want to ask you. You might say I sell peace of mind. And we are back from our double feature, and Adam, I just want to briefly state, no offense to any of our guests who we've had previously, the last month we've had a bunch of guests, isn't it great that it's just the two of us right now? It's kind of refreshing. Yeah, it is. It's very nice. Yeah, it's like we're like a couple who kept experimenting, and now it's just the two of us again, so hopefully there's still love left in this. Well, I mean... Not really. Probably not at all, no. Yeah, we're just going through the motions at this point. No, we're very bitter and hateful toward each other. So anyway, <laughs> uh, the Coen Brothers movies that we uh, are doing for our double feature, uh, we'll start off with our good feature, which is Barton Fink, which uh, was released August 21st, 1991. Technically directed by Joel Cohen in the credits, because this is something important to note, is that um, until our second feature we'll get to, um, they were always credited as Joel as director and Ethan as producer, with the two of them always getting a screenwriting credit, which was a bit odd. I'm not sure why they did that. It was like a maybe a guild thing or something like that. That's what I'm thinking. And because I know there's usually an issue for dual directors. Like Neville Dean and Taylor used to have issues. Mm-hmm. Um, Sin City was a big one because technically there was three directors on that one. Right. 
But it's also important to kind of discuss this in terms of the career of the Coens. This is at a sort of curious middle road before they hit super big mainstream success. At this point, they had done Blood Simple, which is their first feature, um, but also Raising Arizona, which was pretty successful. Barton Fink is a weird one, um, especially considering that it's uh, their first in a lot of ways. Uh, mainly, it's their first film with Roger Deakins as a cinematographer. They had Barry Sonnenfeld as pr- their cinematographer for a while. Um, but you can kind of feel this one has a bit of a different look than the previous movies they had done. This movie looks like a Coen Brothers movie that we know now. If I'm right, they kept this guy. Deakins has done every movie, hasn't he? Almost every movie. Um, I mean, I mean, Deakins, of course, is um, the guy who was forever like the Leonardo DiCaprio cinematographers with the Academy Awards, where he was nominated like 14 times, and he mm-hmm. just won last year for Blade Runner 2049. He shot all of their movies following this, except for Burn After Reading, Inside the Well and Davis, and the upcoming Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Definitely very different from, as I mentioned, they had done Blood Simple... And Raising Arizona, and also Miller's Crossing, just before this. And Barton Fink wow. was kind of... I, yeah. <laughs> Miller's Crossing, man, what a difference between that and this. Yeah, that's the thing, is that even though there's different hallmarks that the Coen brothers kind of carry throughout each of their movies, this one is probably their first extremely experimental one. Because the plots are pretty straightforward for those earlier movies. Um, even if Miller's Crossing is pretty epic, it still is kind of like a more familiar plot. Versus mm-hmm. this is like, it's pretty much every genre of movie combined. Right, but I'd, I'd say that the plot for this is actually relatively simple. It's just they populate it with so much bizarre happenings that it just makes it spin out of control. I mean, it's a simple plot. You know, a writer goes to... Um, L.A. to write a movie, you know, his first script, and he's got writer's block. It's populated by a bunch of fucking maniacs in crazy situations. Right, and uh, we should definitely talk about that writer is played by John Turturro, who had previously worked with the Coens on Mother's Crossing, and this was written specifically for him. And you might know John Turturro now for taking paychecks, especially for Michael Bay. Yeah. Loves yeah. taking And it's a shame that, you know, he's kind of gotten into that rut because when he wants to be, he's a fantastic actor. Uh, yeah, I agree. I was actually talking to, talking to the missus about that earlier where it's like, I cannot believe that even after this performance, he should have been a way bigger headlining star. I mean, he's absolutely phenomenal in this film. And like you said, when he really wants to go for it, he's great. Unfortunately for every, you know, Barton Fink or even his small part in Rounders, he was, which he was great, you get a Big Daddy or a Transformers 1, 2, or 3. It really is a shame, because especially with this one, he perfectly portrays the hubris-fueled, ego-driven writer. Mm-hmm. Like, just pitch perfectly with how much he's obsessed about I want to write something that speaks to the common man like you, John Goodman. Right, I could tell you stories. Yeah, the common man. That's what I want to write for. Not listening at all to the guy. It's so brilliantly portrayed. This this guy who thinks that he is speaking for the little guy, but really he's so far up his own ass he doesn't even just contemplate that. And like it's funny because basically he's had his one successful play, and I do like that. There's a the moment of self reflection. It's like, what if that's all I am? It's just one good play, blah blah. And even after all that, and meeting you know one of his heroes who's a drunk and all, he still is just so far up his own ass and believes that you know he's got these great works inside of him 
but he just has a block. And it's like, you know, dude, maybe you are a one-and-done sort of deal. I was even cringing at that part where John Goodman's like, you know, I got so many stories I could tell you. Yeah, but have you ever been, you know, down in New York? Would I, yeah, I got stories I could tell you. Yeah, but, you know, like you, the common man. I'm like, okay, <laughs> Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll get into Goodman in a second. There's much to speak about with Goodman. Yeah. Uh, but um, with Turo as well, like the movie is pretty much just a deconstruction of this kind of, um, especially that era of, you know, this is like re- early into World War II prior to even like U.S. involvement necessarily. Um, I, I just love that it's so much about the way that he is sort of like stuck in this place and that writer's block that you're mentioning, something that, you know, sort of a creative rut that can be relatable to anybody to a certain degree. Um, I just love how it portrays that, and especially with the way we, it looks, like we were mentioning before, uh, Roger Deakins really makes this look like the hottest movie. It, this movie just is covered in sweat, and you oh, constantly yeah. feel it the entire <laughs> oh, yeah. time. You could smell that hotel room. <laughs> yep, especially with just the the production design detail of like how the freaking wallpaper just keeps dripping down and Ugh. everything like that. It, it, this feels like such a dump, and you can smell it. It provides smell of vision, pretty much, which mm-hmm. is the way that it looks. And just the idea that everyone's putting their nasty, worn in all day shoes outside their doors every night. Mm-hmm. You get that place probably just smells like feet and shame for sure, and it's something that Barton can't grasp. That shame mm-hmm. element of it. Um, and there's even weird sort of meta-contextual stuff with that. Like, I love how we f- we first see the movie opens on him watching his play from the rafters, and the voice of the main actor that we first hear is John Turturro. Mm-hmm. So it's just, like, further displaying the layer upon layer. I didn't even notice it until this time. It's like, oh, fuck, that's John Turturro <laughs> as the voice of the actor who he himself John Turturro is pensively watching from the rafters just like oh god this is all a failure this is all not working oh it doesn't speak to anything that imposter syndrome of sorts only you know maybe he is an imposter maybe that isn't a syndrome maybe that's accurate right yeah absolutely even in the very beginning where just how phony you know all the New York upper class is around him especially when he's at the dinner and all that stuff and then he goes to meet the guy in the bar and the guy in the bar is even telling him you know don't worry about it just go make money don't worry about the the art and integrity of it the the common man will always be here you can always have a voice for them and then he goes out to la and he's almost the pretentious one when he gets out there i thought that was a really cool kind of you know character switch right off the gate i like the way this movie definitely sort of treats its characters in a very gray morality way where Barton is our protagonist, but he's totally like a slimy piece of shit. And also you have Jack um, Lipnick, played wonderfully by Michael Lerner, and he was nominated mm-hmm. for an Academy Award for his performance here, is also just like a slimy, typical, sort of like uh, Jack Warner-esque studio head for uh, Capital Pitches, where the writer is king. Yeah, <laughs> But at the same time, when he's saying certain things about Barton, especially near the end of the movie, where he's completely contradicting his own, like, sort of praising and heaping love for this guy, that's just more of, like, his own hubris speaking to, where it's just like, I believe in you, so I'm going to display all this affection toward you. But then later on, oh, I wasn't the one who liked you, it was Tony Shalhoub, who really didn't like him in any of the scenes that he was in. Yeah, I mean, and at all. So there's so much, like, hypocrisy and all this other stuff going on that's very indicative of Hollywood, but also at the very in when he's talking to Barton, he's totally fucking telling him the truth. Like, exactly what he's fucking doing. 
Just like you're speaking to the common man. This is garbage. They want wrestling. That's what this is. It's a wrestling picture. You're not giving them anything of what they would want. It's like, you know, that dude's right. <laughs> Even though he has these like delusions of grandeur. Where, like he's literally wearing general suit. And he's just like, yeah, I had wardrobe put this up. I'm going really big for the military. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff. But he's still saying a lot of truth when he's dressing down Barton. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, Michael Lerner's relationship with uh, Joe Polito in this just made me laugh so hard. <laughs> just, just how shitty he is to him. Constantly. That whole Poseidon scene is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm so good. It's a great example of the Coens building up so much tension where you think, like, oh, he's going to dress down John Stewart, he doesn't have things prepared. And he's just like, how dare you! Took this creative man this way. <laughs> He's an artist. You are nothing. <laughs> oh, man. He tries to make him kiss his feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. It, the character nuance in this movie is so well done. You know, if the Coen brothers do anything well, it's character nuance. So many characters can do so much without saying a word in their scripts, or, you know, just by even a look or their outfits, you know, the wardrobe. Like, when you first see Barton Fink, you get it right off the bat. With the shape of his glasses, with the way his hair is, everything. You understand exactly the type of character he is. And it works perfect. But I do want to get a little bit into Goodman here. Well, right, because Goodman's really sort of the opposite to that. Where, like, you look at him initially, he just comes in like, oh, it's Dan Connor. He's like Mm -hmm. the common man. Just like he's coming in, he's jovial, he's got that big, round face with that huge smile. And you're instantly just kind of drawn toward him. But especially upon this watch, I noticed a lot of more of the ticks that really do tee you off to him being crazy. Just as things yes. go along, especially even during that scene we were talking about earlier. You can see it in his face whenever he gets interrupted. It's just like, he's pissed off about this. He can see that Barton's phony, but he's just trying to be kind of nice. Which is another yep. great example of that nuance you're mentioning, because despite him being, you know, later on this crazy madman murderer... He's more capable of empathy than Barton ever is in the movie. <laughs> You're right, exactly. And another scene where you can really see it chipping away is he like, you know, i.e. the wallpaper, because the wallpaper sort of represents other things. But he's like, yeah, it's doing it in my room, too. And one thing, too, just how good John Goodman is in this to where, like you said, when he first walks in, he's jovial, he's all, you know, wide-faced, sweaty, but still having a good time. Got his little, you know pint of liquor with him that he brings over to share with Barton. But John Goodman can switch it up. John Goodman is one of the most intimidating guys mm-hmm. when he switches it up. And I mean, if that's not evidence in this movie, I mean, it's been done in several other Coen Brothers movies or even 10 Cloverfield Lane or whatever. But he's just so consistently good. And in this, he's so good. Like you said, you like him so much. Even when the reveal happens, you're still like, yeah, I still kind of like this guy. <laughs> well, because he's dressing down Barton perfectly. which is like, he just killed mm-hmm. a couple people and apparently brought hell with him, which that whole sequence <laughs> right. is so phenomenal. of Just like the, the fire coming down as he's running down. I will show you the life of the mind. Watching this especially, I was just like, man, the Coen brothers have never done a horror movie, but I really want a Coen brothers horror movie because <laughs> it would be terrifying. Could you imagine if they melded the scenes of this from John Goodman some of the stuff from Old Brother Where Art Thou, and then some of the stuff from No Country for Old Men. If they were to blend those three things, you'd have a bona fide, just terrifying movie. Yeah, or even Blood <laughs> like, Simple is very close oh, to like a slasher Simple, movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it would be terrifying. I, I don't think we'll ever get it, but that'd be nice. I do agree with that. But then, like I said, he does this whole elaborate murder slash bringing brimstone and fire to the apartment. And then he dresses down... 
Barton Fink accurately. But just like, you don't listen. And I feel sorry for the people out there. You don't, Barton. And it, it's just this great moment where you're really sympathizing with, like, the guy who just killed those two people. Just like, yeah, he's got a point, Barton. <laughs> That's exactly where I was at. It's like, you know what? God damn it. Mad Mad Months is right. That way also that he sort of invites you in. It's, it's that sort of, like, they always told me that Satan would be attractive kind of thing. Even some of the stuff that, like, they put in that almost seems random, especially seemed random to me at the initial time I watched this, like, when he shoots that guy and says, Hal Hitler, that feels yeah. a lot more relevant now. <laughs> of just, oh, yeah, like, that, this dude yeah. who is, like, I've talks about how, like, his insurance game isn't working that well, how he sort of has this attraction to fascistic tendencies, uh, feels, you know, maybe a bit more relevant than it did. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, well, then there's also... A very small but thorough line of there is some anti-Semitism in this movie, too, definitely. Yes, obviously, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple words that are said, you know, very, very, and I'm like, oh, boy. Another thing, too, the, the box yes. that John Goodman leaves him. I mean, I think we're all in agreement what it is, right? Right, but most like, likely it's Judy Davis's head. That's what I'm guessing, right. But, yeah. that, I mean, I like that they kind of never tell you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's up to you. But, I mean, it's got to be her head, right? Well, yeah, especially, I love how John Goodman comes in, and she's just like, it's just some personal stuff, I wanted to keep it with you, because I knew it would be safe. And later on, the just complete lack of giving a shit with saying, just like, by the way, I lied, it's not mine, and does the hand thing. That's one of my, maybe my favorite shot of the whole movie, is him just saying that as the fire's going on, they're just going into the fire. Like, I love how they play the fire in that sequence, where it just becomes a part of this horrible hotel's set dressing. By mm. the time Barton's, like, walking out of there, and they're just nonchalantly walking around it. it. It's just this representational of just this hell that these characters have sort of just been living in, and now it's just become full-blown hellish by the time we're leaving that entire environment. I mean, if ever a place deserved to be burned down, though. <laughs> I mean, that shithole. <laughs> yes. um, and how, I mean, just how kind of cool was it seeing Steve Buscemi as, like, a baby? Because he looks like a baby in this movie. The Coens had previously worked with Totoro, Goodman, and Buscemi, and Polito, and all of the roles here were written for them, which you can clearly tell. It feels like so oh, much yeah. like they're playing to their strengths wonderfully, even with Buscemi in that part. Like, I love the annoyance he has where every time he has to say, my name is Chet. Like, he has to say it twice in, like, one sentence, which is like, we're a full-service mm-hmm. hotel. My name is Chet. And if you need anything, my name is Chet. <laughs> and he has to write it down. Chet! Exclamation point. I will say that the design of the hotel, the, just the set design and everything, God, was it just done perfectly. Like you said, you can just... It, it, it looks smelly and dirty and nasty. Um, I'm very curious as to where they filmed this hotel at. Like, if this was a pre-existing place that they just dressed down, or if this is exactly how it looked... Or... I believe that the lobby is probably like a real Los Angeles old school hotel, but probably that hallway say is probably a set because they had to line up the fucking fire. Yeah, I'd say the hallway and the probably his room is probably a set. Yeah, but the lobby feels very authentic to sort of that era of the L.A. with the yeah old that, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah, especially I love the shot where John Turturro is coming down the lobby and sees the two detectives just standing there, just like, oh man, this is right out of like this could be in black and white. And it would have been clearly from that era. Oh, absolutely. And how good were those two guys, too? They're back and forth. The detectives mm-hmm. was so well done. Yeah. And the, that guy, the main detective, I can't for the life of me remember his name, but he always plays a shyster in everything he's in. 
I don't know how many roles I've seen that actor in where he's got a gold tooth and his hair is slicked back. It's Richard Portnow as Detective uh, Mastrioni and Christopher Murney as Detective Deutsch. And um, interesting also, uh, both very Italian and German names right before World War II coming in. Uh, You're picking up on all the artsy-fartsy subtext that I didn't even notice. Well, that's the thing is definitely this is the first time I'd seen it in a while. And I remember the first time my fragile little mind was just completely warped by it and I didn't really get much of it. And this time I was definitely, like, picking up on more things. I was, like, almost taking notes first. This is the most research I've attempted to do for an episode. Just like, this is fucking extensive. What does this shot mean? What does this frame mean? Everything in this is very deliberate. Yes. I mean, that is a fact. There's there's so much symbolism going on. And especially um, this watch, I really started to appreciate stuff like the uh, John Mahoney and Judy Davis characters, who we haven't talked about much but are yeah. also pretty great. Like, John Mahoney is clearly a William Faulkner-esque type who was literally a playwright that went to Hollywood. Wasn't as much of a drunk, though. This this guy's, like, a very sad, pathetic <laughs> no, drunk. This, yeah, this guy is a fucking lush. Yes, but the fact that Judy Davis is sort of, like, his um, ghostwriter is actually very true to a lot of, like, Hollywood writers around that time, is that so many of them had, like, this image, but secretly you find out, like, decades later that their sort of secretaries or their uh, even their girlfriends would actually be kind of responsible for either helping them significantly or even doing their work. That's not mm-hmm. uncommon at all. Right, yeah, no, I mean, you've heard, and you've heard about it, like you said, several times. I mean, even that, I know I've mentioned on the show before, you've been in that friggin' Tim Burton movie with the paintings. What is it? What was oh, it Big called? Eyes. Big Eyes or whatever. Also yeah. featuring John Polito. Yep, also featuring John Polito, and I think one of his last roles. Yes. Oh, man, that sucks. He was good. But no, yeah, it, it happened all the time. Well, because it just wasn't socially acceptable. Right. You know, nobody would have bought a screenplay written by a woman or anything done by a woman back then. I will say, as soon as he popped on screen, I'm like, oh, man, that's Frazier's dad. <laughs> that's yep. how I remember him. And he's so good, man. He yes. is absolutely fantastic. And he plays this part to a T with his mustache, the way he's dressed, the really offensive songs that he's singing when he's drunk and wanders off. Um, just how you could tell how full of shit he is. The great he... ADR when he's really drunk that you can hear in the background. Yeah, it was so good. It was so good. But you could just see it on his face. He's so full of shit and Barton calls him out on it and he has no reaction because he doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can definitely tell it's also a case of like, he's only doing this really more to impress Judy Davis than actually, yeah. like, go up against this guy. Like, especially, there's that point where he hits Judy Davis, and obviously it's like, oh, it's a shocking moment. But he's doing more of that sense of, like, I would treat her better. This is such boulder dash and bullshit, Judy Davis. I can't believe he's doing that. You want to come in my room sometime? Right. <laughs> I, I really wish that was your character name and that he referred to her by first and last name the whole time. <laughs> Judy Davis. This is bullshit, Judy, Judy Davis. <laughs> uh, but she's also incredible in the movie, especially when Barton like is trying to break down the outline of the wrestling picture. And she just called me. She's like, oh, it's like a morality tale thing. It's it's pretty simple. Well, she's you got can... it all to a T. Yeah, she yeah. knows the formula. Yeah, but he just can't accept that. It's like, no, it has to speak to the common man, even though she's telling you what the common man would want to see. It's a stupid 100%. morality tale, idiot. And, you know, I I really haven't seen a lot with her in it. The most notable thing that I can remember is the ref. 
the mm-hmm. Christmas movie. Yes. Um, but other than that, and this, I can't really think of much I've seen her in, which is a shame because she's great in both of these movies. Yeah, she did a lot of Woody Allen movies, and she's no, quite good. No, in I'm those. not really a Woody Allen fan. <laughs> I can't imagine why, Adam. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> well, well. Um, I also remember her distinctly in uh, Naked Lunch, the Cronenberg film. Oh, that's right. She was yes. in Okay. That's the other thing, too. Because now every time I watch, because back in the day when I watched The Ref, I'm like, what the fuck do I know her from? Mm-hmm. And I just never looked it up. So it was Naked Lunch. Thank you for that. Finally. You just put a 15-year-old brain baby to bed. Yeah. Though Naked Lunch has a lot of similarities to this movie as well. It's oh, vi- yeah. That would be a good double feature, as it were, uh, because they both similarly follow writers that are kind of stuck in a block in their life. Yeah. And, Impressive um, double feature. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're really surreal, disturbing <laughs> movies that also have tinges of horror, but not quite. And like I said, this movie has so many different genres it goes into. There are definitely like huge horror moments. There's like really warped sort of examples of era of Hollywood's uh, filmmaking. Like I love especially watching it this time after seeing a lot more Hitchcock movies, the warped version of, like, the North by Northwest train going through the tunnel for the sex scene, but here it's going down the pipe of that sink, that dirty, dirty, awful sink pipe. It's so great. (laughs) Well, and also, too, you know, I'm sure you already know this, but obviously that was sort of a callback to what John Goodman said, where you could hear the sex through the pipe. So right there, too, that sort of tells you, eh, he probably did it. Yes, um, and, and we got to talk about also the horror of that sequence where uh, John Turturro wakes up and then looks over Judy Davis's body, smacks that mosquito, and just the blood comes pouring out of her body. Oh, how awful. So terrifying. I mean, I mean, as soon as you slap the mosquito, you're like, oh no, what the hell's going on? And then, yeah, I can't imagine just that soupy gelatinous mess of blood just leaking out from god knows where i'm assuming her chest wounds but still mm-hmm. that it doesn't come out until he sort of moved her body just even a little bit like it was almost yeah. stuck inside of her and then that slap let it all loose oh god yeah the john Turturro's classic scream <laughs> he's got one of the best male screams ever on film that's the thing is, especially watching this, and if you watch some of their earlier stuff, you can really tell sort of the influence that Sam Raimi, who we did an episode previously on, and was sort of a um, contemporary of these guys, and they kind of worked on each other's films earlier on. You can kind of see his influence in some of the more horror-driven sequences like that. Like, that almost feels like, it, in a more over-the-top context, more comedically driven, it would be an Evil Dead scene. Oh, 100%, yeah, you can yeah. definitely see that. Especially with the reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, but like I said, that scream, and then you just hear loud lumbering John Goodman coming from the hotel room, and they sort of follow the wall to the door. Yes. And he's like, Barn, are you okay in there? Uh, he didn't know. It closes the door. <laughs> <laughs> and then comes back with his tail between his legs um, later on. And especially the oh. way that John Goodman is super prepared with how to work the situation, oh, you automatically know. It's just like, oh, fuck, this dude's done this a lot before. <laughs> I love the part where, it, you know, it's sort of like somber. Barton's in the bathroom. He looks like shit. He can't believe what's going on. He's looking out the door, and you can just hear John Goodman doing stuff. Then John Goodman walks by with the body and hits his head on the dresser. <laughs> that was so funny to me for some reason. I don't know why. Just that, that movie, this movie does that a lot. They'll throw in these little punches of just either visual or, you know, under the breath humor or just something out there. It's not 
Right. Like you said, I wouldn't call this a straight up comedy at all. I wouldn't call this a straight up drama. I wouldn't call this a straight up horror. I wouldn't call this, a, like you said, it's a perfect mashup of a ton of different genres. Mm-hmm. And they're all done incredibly well. Right. Yeah, especially even there's also noir elements in there with the two detectives. Like, I love when John Turturro comes into his room and they're reading his script. It's like, you call yourself a writer? I don't know, I kind of liked it. Um, and, yeah. and, and then looking over at the bed, it's just like, oh, you get a lot of nosebleeds there, Barton? And the blood's still there on this mattress. Uh, and it's it looks like it's still wet, probably because of the heat and the humidity. It hasn't dried. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how nasty. <laughs> Flip the fucking mattress. <laughs> I know, dude. Come on. <laughs> Buscemi probably has done that before. You can get him to do it without questioning anything. Oh, working in a place like that, he's definitely done it before. Right, exactly. I almost <laughs> want the spinoff movie about Steve Buscemi as that, that bellhop. It almost, it's like, it would be kind of like Four Rooms, but good. I was just going to say, we pitch. almost got that, but we could probably get a better version. I'd hope. <laughs> I would hope. Um, but before we get off of Barton Fink, I did want to ask, what is your interpretation of the picture? Which, for those of you who don't know, there's a picture that's in Barton's room that's of this woman on the shore that constantly he just sort of, like, looks at when he's stuck in his writer's block. And then later on, at the very end of the movie, he finds this woman in real life, and there's, really a recreation of the photo when he's just sitting there looking at this girl on the beach. What is your interpretation of that element of the movie? Well, I almost took it like when he's in the hotel room looking at the picture, that's almost like his work and his writing or he, it's something he can't get, something he can't have. So, you know, cause he's got the block and then at the end when he's finally completed, then he gets it. So it's almost like the reward at the end mm-hmm. or just, you know, just a general form of escapism for him. I mean, it could be anything. It could be his, you know, his white whale. It could be, just a shitty picture, and we're supposed to interpret it over and over. I mean, it, it mean, what about you? What did you take it as? I, I have a similar approach that it's just like it's something that he's always sort of grasping toward. But with the ending, it's more to me a case of like he's this guy who, as we mentioned, was so far up his ass, didn't really know what the common man meant. And now that he's been cast aside, where like he's still under contract with Capital Pictures, but he still has to like write whatever the fuck they want, he finally finds this sort of paradise but he has to actually go looking for it he can't just like stay in that room and do nothing he has to he finally finds inspiration when he actually embraces it and goes searching for it he finds what his sort of nirvana is by the way i also love the factor that the of the little detail of the seagull going down into the water and how that was completely unplanned and just yeah i read that that's awesome yeah, it's it's almost this thing where it's like, oh, this sort of beauty's there, but that little seagull's just there to remind you, just like, there's something always slightly amiss. It's never going to be the perfect picture at the same time, but you find something pretty goddamn close if you get your head out of your ass and go find it. Right. That's a good way to put it. Also, real quick, before we get out of there, um, Tony Shalhoub's also amazing in this movie. We haven't talked oh about Oh my god, him. he's so good, dude. <laughs> he's so good. He Does he got the demure... And the voice and everything of what you would picture an old, you know, 1930s, 1940s big wig in Hollywood. If you only know Tony Shalhoub as Monk, go look at especially oh, Coen I... Brothers movies. He's great in a lot of this. He's great, dude. What are you, writer? God, you could throw a rock in here and hit one. Yeah, no, Tony Shalhoub, man, the thing is, he's predominantly known for Monk, obviously. But then he was in, like, Wings and popped up in a bunch of other just... The thing the guy's got chops, man. Mm-hmm. He just never really gets the chance, unless no, you count, I don't know, 13 Ghosts. Or, like Taturo, he likes appearing in Michael Bay movies as well. He, oh, he does, like, oh, God. Or also, you know, I will say, the 
one of Michael Bay's better films, Pain and Gain, which is clearly trying to be a Coen Brothers movie at every step. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. But we're getting a bit off track, so let's go into our final thoughts then on Barton Fink, Adam. Uh, this movie, dude, you can totally see where the Coen brothers really started coming into the style that would define them for the rest of their career. I, I think it really takes more of a shape in this film than it did their previous couple. Um, not that there aren't things in those other ones, but this one, I mean, just with, even with the setting, the score, the, the actors chosen and the ensemble, I just think this is a great, great movie to watch. If you want to see the start of something that's been frankly more hit than miss, and John Turturro just is so good in this movie. And it really makes you sort of weep when watching Anger Management or Mr. Deeds or any of the Adam Sandler projects he's been a part of, just of what could have been. Um, I think it's a it's a great movie. It's funny. It's There's a lot of good scenes of tension. You know, it really deconstructs the mind of, you know, this guy who thinks he's really got it together when he really has nothing together and he's just pretentious, frankly. Uh, I just thought it was a, it's a really, really good movie. Yeah, it's not necessarily my tip-top five, like, favorite Coen Brothers movies. Um, it's just under there, though. Especially, I, I said this before in our intro, I love re-watching Coen Brothers movies because I usually tend to enjoy them just, if only slightly more, each time I watch it. And that definitely happened in this case, where I got a, little, a lot more of the sort of the historical kind of commentary and references that were going on this time around. But still, at the same time, there's so much to appreciate about that initial sort of string of a story that I agree is there, just like a writer with writer's block who sort of slowly realizes that his ego is completely overblown, um, is really hanging on to such gorgeous imagery and production design and great performances all around. Like we said, this is maybe the best John Gooden performance ever, and that's saying a lot, because that dude's great, but this might be the most nuanced and wide-ranging performance of his whole career. But there's there's still such like weird genre shifts that don't feel like total mood whiplash necessarily as much as part of this really weird but engrossing story that's going on. And I would say it's definitely one of their most underrated because, you know, everyone loves talking about Raising Arizona, which came out before this, or Fargo, which was right after this. I got him a lot more mainstream success. But uh, this one, I think, deserves to be just like pushed out there a lot more as maybe like a, a near masterpiece from them. And it's also a movie where, you know, if you've listened to the show before, you can kind of tell like our attitudes on here aren't too dissimilar to like the relationship between John Goodman and John Turturro. I have always a, a bit more of a chip on my shoulders, but like, well, Adam, you see, this is actually a commentary on this bit and this, but I don't know if you saw that comment, man, but um, <laughs> what, I, what I love about Barton Fink really is it's a movie that I don't necessarily still get certain aspects of it, but it's a movie that tices me to watch it more and more to get that stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's yeah, a movie that absolutely. encourages rewatches, which is so rare, especially in our modern times. Just like a movie that you want to keep watching again and again, as opposed to like, oh, I like that, that was fine, and I'll never watch it again. Or, mm -hmm. fuck that, that was terrible, I'll never watch it again. This is a movie that makes me want to keep rewatching just to like fix all the little puzzle pieces I didn't see the first time. Or right, the second I, time. Or the third time. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the good the good thing of this movie, too, just to piggyback on what you're saying here for the end. It doesn't matter either if you never get it. It's still just an enjoyable movie. Right. But um, speaking of movies 
that you feel like you want to keep watching so you can maybe get it a bit more. Uh, the Lady Killers. Allow me to present myself formally. Goldthwaite Higginson Doa, PhD. Allow me to introduce you to my friends. We play church music. Well, gentlemen, let us make beautiful music. There'll be no more. Unfortunately, Ms. Munson has complicated the situation. Damn! This is a Christian house. I'm trying to help you, boy. And so you should, madam, so you should. Now, I'm going to go right out in the front and say I don't mind this movie that much. A lot of people think it's their worst movie and so on and so forth. I don't agree with that viewpoint. I think it's a flawed movie, but I think there's a lot in here to really enjoy. What would you say is their worst movie then? Oh, probably Intolerable Cruelty. See, I'll say this much. Before I'd seen it this time, as I said in my intro, I was not looking forward to watching it because I do think it's their worst feature. And upon you rewatching son of it, a bitch. <laughs> but upon rewatching it, I still feel that way. But it's more in a fashion of like I could see a great movie in this movie. Upon this watch, the stuff that's really great stood out more, but also the stuff that's really garbage really stood out. To me. <laughs> it's frustrating, honestly, because we should, of course, mention this is from 2004, uh, specifically. Um, was released March 26, 2004, and was the first film where the Coen brothers were both credited as director, actually. I didn't know this until we were doing this. This is the first time they were mm-hmm. received joint credit on that. This is a remake of the 1955 film starring Alec Guinness, which have you seen the original movie, Adam? I have not, actually. No. Have you? I did, actually. Last year, I watched both the original and this one, because I had heard the original Lady Killers was a good movie. And that one, it, it's a fun... Uh, 50s era madcap British comedy. Especially, it's worth watching just for, like, Alec Guinness sort of plays it completely outside of, like, what you would normally think of Alec Guinness as, who obviously you would think, oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Bridge on the River Kwai, a few other things. In this case, he's playing it more like a haunted mansion ghost before they died. Like, he looks exactly like one of the animatronic ghosts on the haunted mansion, where, like, his teeth are, like, outward and awkward, but he's... The basic plot is that he's a thief who is disguising himself as the leader of a merry band of musicians who take a room inside of the basement of this old lady's apartment building. In that movie, it, he's definitely treating it a lot like the Tom Hanks character is kind of here, where he treats himself as an intellectual, but you can tell the whole time, like, you're a fraud, you're a phony. But that movie is one that I don't think necessarily is too above being remade. It is definitely, you know, it feels like a 50s British movie, but the concept is great. Like, it's a great madcap concept that you could adapt to an American audience. And I think there are some bone structure stuff that I think really shows that the Coen brothers could have done that. I just think it falls apart whenever it's not mainly focused on Tom Hanks, who is playing the Alec Guinness part in this one, and Irma P. Hall, who plays the old lady in this case. I think any scenes of the two of them together are dynamite. They're great together. Like, I almost wish it was more of a two-hander than an ensemble piece, because they're so fun together. Like, I love the bit where um, he is confessing to Irma P. Hall and kind of tempting her to, like, let him off the hook. And then she's like, oh, no, don't tempt me like that, you satanic devil. I know your intentions were pure. And Tom Hanks is the line in the movie at that point. He's like, no, they weren't. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I love that bit so much. I was, like, dying. 
at that Irma moment, especially. Irma Hall in this movie, man. She steals the movie, though. No, 100%. yeah. 100%. Completely. Left my wallet in El Segundo. <laughs> no, I like to see when Tom Hanks, too, where the sheriff comes to visit and he hides under the bed. <laughs> so the sheriff thinks she's gone insane. Because she's trying to get Tom Hanks to come out from under the bed and he thinks there's nobody actually there. Uh, yeah, anything with Tom Hanks and Irma Hall together is really good. I'd also argue that anything with Tom Hanks and any one other of the criminals is very well done. I just think he has a very good back and forth with almost everybody in this. But it does get a little muddy when they all get together. Especially with throwing um, Marlon Wayans in it. He gets on my nerves in this movie. I do not like Martin LeWayne's at all in this. And I don't think it's just his fault necessarily as an actor. No, it's I the think, character. Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, <laughs> look, we're two white guys. I don't want to get too far into this, but the Coen brothers have never had the best, you know, way of writing black characters. Right. Which, I mean, because, like, what, before this is, like, Hudsucker Proxy had, like, a sort of magical black guy stereotype sure. in there. And, like, they haven't been the best with that. It's very <laughs> stereotypical. Well, it, it's like someone who watched a lot of Outcast videos from around that time and got the complete wrong lesson of what to take off of that. <laughs> yeah, I get, yeah, definitely. Or watched like, you know, Boys in the Hood or Baby Boy. It was like, ah, I want it to be that guy. <laughs> you know, you're like, wait a second. Because there's no way this asshole will get hired for anything with how he acts. No, and there's no way even slipping Stephen Root a $100 bill is going to get him back on that payroll at all. No, 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 no. I will say, though, his, his scene with J.K. Simmons with her at the casino, J.K. Simmons' IBS is acting up. That was, that was pretty funny. Like, I like J.K. Simmons, obviously. Like, it's hard not to like J.K. Simmons in anything. Yeah, I like but, him in this, too, as Pancake. Yeah, I mean, especially whenever he tries to bring up just like, no, here's me just going on a limb here. I think I should take a bit more of the share, given the yeah, accident. Yeah. It's like a workman's yeah. comp thing. <laughs> And I just love his sure easiest thing in the world. <laughs> I honestly would wish it was more of just like Hanks and J.K. Simmons and maybe one of the other guys, but I just think that the biggest death nail of the movie is just that they don't work together as an ensemble very well. Yeah, that's that's very very true. Yeah, I'd argue Tom Hanks, J.K. Simmons, and maybe the Colonel. Yeah, the General. Yeah, the yeah. General. Yeah, like I said before, this is I'm by no means so. I think this is a great movie. I think there's a lot of good scenes in it. It's just. I do agree with your assessment earlier, though. It does sort of fall apart when they're all together. Mm -hmm. You might get a sense of really good back and forth with, you know, two of them. But then once you add the third one, it sort of just gets messy. And when all five or however five or six of them are together, then it's just it almost turns into where you're listening to people talk over each other. Yeah, and then especially when you have, like, the the contrast between them, it almost feels like some of them are cartoon characters, some of them aren't. Like, you have Ryan Hurst as the lump character. who's Oh, he's like, a complete cartoon. Yeah, Guys, I don't know. I think we, we should really maybe not do that. And it's just, it's... And then also, Marlon Wayans is also very cartoonish, and then... Mm -hmm. Like, they all have cartoonish elements to them. It's just that they never really contrast with each other really well. There's no Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck perfect dynamic there. It's more just like, why are we getting these particular set of Looney Tunes together? It just, yeah, that, I don't get good. why that dynamic works. Why we got six Elmer Fuds? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I also did find Ryan Hurst annoying too, because, I mean, come on. Who's going to hire this asshole either? All right, you the man. I'm the man. Like, get the fuck out of here with this. It's just, I like the idea of all the characters. Mm -hmm. But they they just did go a little too over the top with most of them. Right. 
I mean, actually kind of with all of them, except for Tom Hanks, who obviously was playing the con man and everything. But the rest of them do are a little over the top. On paper, like, you would love to see Tom Hanks in a Coen Brothers movie. And the fact that it's this movie where he's doing such a great job. But it feels like he's really doing the heavy lifting also for the movie. And he can't quite lift it all by himself. Because it's such a shame. Because he, especially the way that he does stuff like the laughter. I love the movie. Let's all make... Beautiful music, stuff like that it's is so creepy and weird. Fucking great. <laughs> yeah, so like, it comes off so sleazy and gross. Yeah, I mean, in his wardrobe and just the way he pronounces his name, and he's he's absolutely fantastic in this, and is such an odd character for him. Yeah, and he does, he nails it, and it is kind of a bummer that it's sort of bogged down by everything else, all the other happenings. Mar- I don't know, man. It might just be Marlon Wayans for me in this. He just gets on my fucking nerves. And the fact that, like, the way they make you sympathize with that character is this really horrible... Honestly, abusive really... relationship? Yeah. yeah. Irma P. Hall reminds him of his abusive, horrible mom. And it's like, is that supposed to be funny? I don't know what <laughs> no, we're supposed to get out of that. <laughs> and she does whoop his ass with that pillow, though. <laughs> she does. She, she whoops Marlon Wayne's fucking ass. But, like, the physical comedy that scene's ruined by that flashback. It's just like, this is really fucked up. I don't you know, know I agree. Yeah. what we're getting out of this. But I do like the cinematography, and this was well done. The set right, this design... is Deacons as well, doing the cinematography here, and it's gorgeous looking. Oh, yeah. The set design was really well done. All the locations, mm-hmm. the costuming, everything. And the recipe is there for this to do to been a classic. But, man, they're just, they were not on. I tend to not believe it was studio involvement, mm-hmm. simply because that doesn't really happen to the Coen brothers. They kind of right. do what they want. But it's interesting that this is right after Intolerable Cruelty, which you mentioned. And I have a similar thing with Intolerable Cruelty, I'd say, because like, my biggest problem with that movie is George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones are an amazing like screwball-era comedy couple in that movie. Just everything mm-hmm. around them's pretty lame. And yeah. put together. <laughs> like I, Cruelty feels like it was a contract movie for them. Mm-hmm. Like they were contracted to the studio and they had to put something out, so they put that out. Considering that's also following um, The Man Who Wasn't There, which is probably their least mainstream possible movie ever. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Yep, that, that's, that's a, a that's a fun movie. one. <laughs> that's a great movie, but oh my god. <laughs> it's, you want to talk about depressing. Oh my god. Well, dude, any movie. Any movie you bring up from the Coen brothers, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't watch No Country for Old Men and walk away feeling good. <laughs> I gotta, you know, I gotta be honest. There was nothing about that movie that made me, like, happy. What, you didn't see, get out of that, like, and then I woke up, just like, and spread sunshine all over <laughs> right. the place. It's great. Oh, he's playing coin games. He's just having fun. <laughs> oh, he loves his little air hose. Oh, he's treating humans like they were cattle. Oh, boy, he's all mixed up. I, uh... So you're talking about lady killers, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That, that's the problem with this movie, though, with lady killers. It, it's You constantly think of what could have been mm-hmm. watching it. And uh, still, like I said, there's enough there for me to make it. I've I th- I've seen it a couple times, but not anything of note, mm-hmm. no like numbers. But and every time I've enjoyed it a little less each time. Mm-hmm. That's a rare still... example for the Coens as well. Exactly, but there's still enough in it to make me get through the whole movie every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's, it's it's astonishing to say like one of their worst movies, just like kind of a watchable cable movie. <laughs> Yeah, right, and that, and that's exactly how I've seen it every time. 
it was either on a cable channel or somebody bought the DVD for like three bucks. Yeah. This feels like a movie they would have made maybe earlier in their careers as well. Like this, especially Barry Seinfeld's a producer, this one feels a bit more like the style of like their Raising Arizona Blood Simple era to me. Yeah, it. I could see that. It, it does maybe... kind of feel like it's stepping back a bit from what they were kind of usually doing. Even though it's Deacon's doing, and you can tell like Deacon's is doing because it, it does look gorgeous. At the same time, it does kind of feel like they're going back a bit. Like there's a point when you mentioned when the sheriff comes in. There's a shot of Tom Hanks that's literally like a Sam Raimi shot. Yes. <laughs> like he's looking over and it's tilts him. It's like it's almost Tom Hanks becomes Ash for yes, a second. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I think one a big problem with this too is. Um, like I said, the music, the sets, everything's gorgeous. But Oh Brother, We're Out Thou was such a huge hit, and people loved it and the way it was. And it, you almost could tell that maybe they tried to do more of that in this as well with the music and this, maybe even the palette on certain things and some of the characters. And I just think that was a big mistake, too. I think that's kind of the case with Intolerable Cruelty as well, because I mentioned that, like, Man Who Wasn't There came out before, right before yeah. those two. And the one right before that was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So they went, yes. like, a complete left turn yeah. with that movie. And it's like, maybe let's get a bit more of the sunshine and rainbows element that people, like, really gravitated toward. And yeah, especially, like, the music choices, I do agree. They do a lot of gospel here, and mm-hmm. I don't think most of it works that well. I like how it's used at the very ending, where you follow the cat with the finger. I think that's yes. actually a pretty great button for the movie. The whole garbage barge thing. Like, it's a it's a pretty funny joke, though I do think they go to it a lot. Yeah, oh, too much. Too yeah. much, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Two times would have been fine. Yeah. Maybe three times. Not well, yeah, for comedy, five. of course. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you did, like, two regular body bags, and then you had the... Mainly, I love the way Tom Hanks dies in this movie. Yeah, that, me too. It's such a ridiculous death scene, but it's actually really perfectly put together. And just the way his body falls after, like, the cape rips and all that other shit, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom Hanks rocks the shit out of that cape. Oh, dude, yeah. He, he really rocks it. And, <laughs> he looks like an evil Colonel Sanders. Oh, yeah, but you can tell that, like, sort of how people can be kind of entranced by him. He does feel very much like a seductive Southern Satan type. Oh, yeah, you want to listen yeah. to every word this guy tells you. Yep. Uh, yeah, you, you want to hang out with this guy, man. Yeah, and even when I love he does the elaborate lie about just like, oh, we found arrowheads in your basement, and then <laughs> going off on all of that, and <laughs> then know. he, like, and then he gets caught in the lie, which is like, I don't believe it, and he's just like, right, it was a lie, but! <laughs> <laughs> he first goes down there, and he's like, checking the acoustics, supposedly. Yes. And he's, <laughs> <laughs> And, like, just certain line deliveries, like, particularly, uh, we must have waffles forthwith, uh, is great. <laughs> yeah. It does. It's not equal to every line because like Marlon Wayans in that same scene keeps doing that. Like you brought your bitch to the Waffle Hut, and they yeah. constantly repeat that line. I know. I it's love like, Mountain though, Mountain Girl. The fact that fucking Jakey Sims refers to her fully as Mountain Girl every single time. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the heist element of it as well? Because we're mentioning sort of like this is a heist caper. <laughs> Did you like sort of the breakdown of that heist scheme and how it all kind of fell apart? Yeah, I thought it worked really well actually. Um, you know, it came out to be, it was a really good idea. And plus, you know, doing that, you got Steven Root. You know, that's how they introduced his character. And Steven Root's good in pretty much anything he's in once he's given a shit. But yeah, I thought it was it was a pretty good idea. Although, you know, any idiot would have been able to place that it was Marlon Wayne's character. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Where he gets fired and then he bribes to come back. And then within like a day, there's a heist. Like, yeah. you, you probably understand. Most likely, yes. 
I was more invested when you sort of have the elements of them, them trying to kill off this old lady, and they just can't seem to do it. Like especially the whole scene where the general tries to do so. Oh, I know <laughs> that that almost feels like like I mentioned where they're kind of going back. That feels also like a very Sam Raimi dark comedy sequence too, of just like he tries to drink the water and the dentures are in there, and then he goes like moving around. He's trying to get <laughs> he's got like, the cigarette lodged in his throat, and then f- the way he falls down the stairs, everything. I just love also just these guys tra- getting caught in the weird circumstances, like when the charge goes off and the money flies everywhere, and Irma P. Hall comes in, and Tom Hanks, you can see him processing, trying to think of a lie, but you can see it on his face, of just like, how am I going to explain this right now? Um, <laughs> right. And he's just kind of like stalling with the way he's talking and all other stuff. Like, that's the stuff that works, I think, the best, is like these guys getting caught in the moment. That's, I think, where the group of them work the best. Like, say in the sequence where they're, like, cleaning up dishes after her big party thing, and Tom Hanks is leading the discussion, but also they come in and say stuff. Like, I love the bit where he talks about, and that money um, was uh, J.K. Simmons's, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't have a bank account, he just carries his money with him in a rather large sack. I don't trust the banks. It, like I said, it's so funny that, and then there's just parts where it just doesn't fit. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand how they can have all these good elements. It's like making a batch of chocolate chip cookies, but not having the chocolate chips. Right. It's just, it's so funny to me that all these great ingredients could, there's just one, there's got to be one thing missing to where they all don't coalesce and glue together. Because um, all the makings are here, like I said, of this being one of the best Coen Brothers movies that there could be. It's a heist with real fun characters and scenery and great actors. Mm-hmm. But just none of it comes together. I mean, it's a miracle that just, like, they've done that so many times where you're like, I don't know how this is going to work together. These disparate ingredients shouldn't be that great together. But right. then it's magnificent. And it's only, like, a handful of times where it hasn't worked that well. And this is one of them. I think it's a testament to the fact that, like, having this kind of a failure was only, like, the exception that proves the rule later kind of thing. Yeah, it, that, it's that's almost, a good way to put it. It's almost as if, like, for the balance of the universe, we need the Lady Killers for that to work. <laughs> like, the Lady right. Killers is a necessary evil for us to get as many great Coen Brothers movies as we have. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Spin this off into my final thoughts by saying, like I said, I still think this is my least favorite movie of theirs, but it's not nearly as bad as movies I remembered it being. I still think it's got really great, enjoyable moments, especially with, like I said, Irma P. Hall and Tom Hanks are wonderful together, and some of the other supporting cast members have their moments, just doesn't really coalesce as a sort of ensemble comedy caper that it should. Really watching it this time, just like, man, you're so fucking close, movie. But you just can't quite get there. It does give me more appreciation for, like I said, the other Coen Brothers movies where they have done that. Or also, uh, we haven't talked about it that much, but the Fargo TV series, which the Coen Brothers are vaguely involved in, but it's mainly like a bunch of other writers, how they managed to basically make like a season of television that feels like a great Coen Brothers movie. Um, it, it makes me appreciate their work even more. And also, you know, in season two, they had uh, Bokeem Woodbine, you know, black actor, doing a yeah. Coen Brothers happy role and being fucking amazing. <laughs> He's so great in that second season. I, I would have never, ever thought that the words Bokeem Woodbine and amazing would be in the same sentence. Right. But he's so great in that second season. But it's also it's a it's a character where race is clearly a part of his character. But it isn't. Sure. But it's he's also weird and eccentric and odd. And quite frankly, uh, the Coens haven't done the best job with other black actors they've had in here, including Marlon Wayans, who, like I do agree, I think is really the thing that 
sinks this movie so much. But still, despite that, it's despite being their worst movie, it is still watchable in of itself. It's just more disappointing than terrible. That's good. You know, yeah, I'll echo pretty much everything you just said. Mm-hmm. It's not unwatchably bad, like a no. lot of the movies we've discussed. But it's just, it makes you long for what could have been the movie that could have possibly come out of this. And, uh, you know, for that, it's definitely on the lower end of the Coen Brothers scale. But I, I still think it's worth a watch, if even just to see a great performance out of Tom Hanks. Um there's a lot worse out there. There's a lot better out there, especially from our directors of topic. But I, you know, I think it's worth it just to check it out. It's on the scale of the movies we've covered for the bad movies. I'd say this is near the top of towards the better ones. Oh yeah, easily. I mean, the the, the gold <laughs> yeah. standard still Miami Connection. I don't think any one thing can really achieve that status. Yeah, Miami Connection, this, and maybe like a Sergeant Bilko, right, <laughs> would be up there as watchably watchable. Three movies that would never really be connected otherwise. (laughs) At all. (laughs) And that's what we're achieving here, everybody. That's the main thing we're bringing to society, is connecting movies in ways no one on the internet ever did before. We're innovators, we're groundbreakers. Just like the Coen brothers. Sure. And on that note, that's the end of our double feature discussion. But uh, we did have some feedback, uh, mainly from people who we asked you all on our Facebook and Twitter page, at DEDBpod, both Facebook and Twitter, um, for your favorite Coen Brothers films, and least favorites as well. And Will Torres first comes up and says, My favorite Coens is Brad Pitt's dumb grin before George Clooney reacts very harshly in Burn After Reading. My least favorite? People who only have seen The Big Lebowski and think it's their best movie. Yeah, I don't got a problem with that, with people saying... Because, I mean, Big Lebowski is a great movie, but their best, no. But Big Lebowski is a good movie. Not, uh, yeah, I agree. Not quite, but it, I would say it's one of my favorites, but it's definitely, like, more people maybe need to see, say... Like, my personal favorite's Raising Arizona. Oh, mine too. I fucking Absolutely, love 100%. Arizona so That's much. such a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> I heard some hintings, Adam. Are you not that big a fan of Burn After Reading? Um... It's not that I'm not a big fan of it. It's just I think it's on their lower end. Mm-hmm. I think Malkovich is fun in it. Brad Pitt's really fun in it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, if it's on, I'll watch it. Let's put it that way. It's not one I seek out ever. Right. I mean, I remember I haven't seen it since the theater about a decade ago, but I remember loving it when I first saw it. I don't know if that'll increase or not if I were to rewatch it. But it's one of it's, it's like I said, I've wanted to rewatch so many Coen Brothers movies just because I get mm-hmm. usually more and more every time I see something from them. Um, Tyler Thompson says obligatory normie comment about Big Lebowski being a great movie with zero supporting explanation. That See, that, that type <laughs> of thing, I, I don't agree with that. My mm-hmm. thing is someone could just say they liked it. They thought it was funny. Yes. That's all you got to say. Right. You know, it was great. It made me laugh. There mm-hmm. you go. That's enough that's, explanation for me. And that's it's interesting, though, that Lebowski was another one where at the time when it came out, it was not very well like sort of a track like oh, critics all. critics liked it but it was a pretty big bomb and nobody really appreciated it. it's one of the best examples of like a movie gaining huge cultural relevance on video yes 100 yeah. percent. well dude the trailers for the big lebowski alone you're like what the fuck is this yeah so i understood that and was the thing that gave jeff bridges his second win as an actor 100 percent. there's no yeah. i don't think there's any denying that which thank god because I mean, of he's course. turned in some fantastic performances since. Yes. 
Um, Rachel Hill says, favorite, Lebowski, True Grit, and Fargo. Least favorite, Inside Llewellyn Davis, and I know this is an extremely unpopular opinion, but No Country for Old Men isn't that great. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I mean, admitting, you know what, <laughs> No Country for Old Men was a great example for me of, I didn't like it that much upon the first time I saw it. And I think that might have been just a lot of like the big Oscar push for it, and admitting because I always obviously loved Javier Bardem in it, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of people, myself included, were very disappointed by the sort of lack of an ending with that ending. Sure. But really, watching especially more and more, you really do get to see how much more you know uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays a huger role, sort of over that casting a shadow over that movie mm-hmm. when you watch and it over I'd, and over again. And I'd argue it's one of his best performances of all time. Yes, he's phenomenal in that movie. But really, mm-hmm. his sort of like his elder statesman sort of stance on that whole movie, and how he's sort of seeing this all break apart, and the, the bigger stories about just like the kind of pointlessness of ex- the sort of um, nihilism that, that movie's going for. I think he really sort of represents a lot of that in the tragedy and all. It's it's we could go on if we ever cover No Country for Old Men, but yeah. I, I really I didn't really see that until I saw it a couple more times as well. Sure. I think I'm around the same boat, No Country for Men. The first time I saw it, I think there was just so much buzz around it yeah. that it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good. I don't get it, all the hype. But then after mm-hmm. watching it again, literally even the next time, I was like, okay, yeah, I kind of understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But I loved Inside the Wall and Davis the moment I saw it. That's such an underrated gem that we almost covered for the show. But I, I think... And I haven't seen that one. Oh, my God. Fucking Oscar. I, that was the movie that made me really discover Oscar Isaac. I'd seen him in other movies before that, but that was the movie I'm just like, this dude's an amazing actor. And it's another great example of like, it's comedy and tragedy all at the same time. And it's about that music scene of like the early sixties as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very well made movie. I love that one. Um, Josh Schumacher says favorites, raising Arizona, true grit, no country for old men, least favorite lady killers. Brian Kane says, I love a serious man. I feel it has the best depiction of something the Coens have, always strived for in their other movies, which is a guy who is desperately trying to hold his deteriorating life together. Uh, least favorite is Hail Caesar, although I'm sure I'd say Lady Killers if I rewatched it. Neither of those are particularly bad movies, though. It's just uh, they hard to share a room with Fargo, you know. I have yeah. not seen Hail Caesar either. It's fun. I mean, th- that was the one with um, with uh, Mr. Han Solo with the wood horror yeah. sample. Um, yeah. And all that. Um, and A Serious Man is the one um, you almost had us do for the show. And that's another one where, when I saw it, it was almost a decade ago, I didn't like it very much. But I will say, it was the movie that introduced me to Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah. Who's been, like, a bunch of shit since. And he's a great actor. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's yeah. absolutely fantastic. I just found that movie so boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh, Rafe Telsch says, Intolerable Cruelty remains the worst. They there tried to make go. a mainstream film, and it just wound up lacking their usual style. Underappreciated favorites include A Serious Man and The Man Who Wasn't There, both utterly depressing. Hudsucker Proxy, Lighter Fair, and their debut, Blood Simple. Uh, again, you know, I agree with that for the most part, except for The Serious Man. Um, it's been years since I've seen Hudsucker Proxy. But I do, I really like the other ones mentioned for sure. Okay. Hudsucker Proxy definitely feels very underrated to me, especially that one actually is interesting because that is... Um, one that Sam Raimi actually did second unit on, and you can tell his fingerprints oh, really? over that one. Yeah, yeah. So I'll have to rewatch that. Yeah, now. and he's even in it. He has a brief role in there too. But that it may be my favorite Tim Robbins performance as well. He's like, you know, for kids, 
with like the hula hoop shit and all that. And it's also it's got a rare villainous performance from Paul Newman, who's great. Um, it's I, I really like that one. Um, but but yeah, and Blood Simple. Also, if you have never seen Blood Simple, that is so worth watching. For oh, nothing yeah, else, absolutely. you see immediately like, they hit the ground running with Blood Simple. It's such a great tense thriller that you completely get engrossed in that whole time. Uh, you never seen um, M. Emmett Walsh be so terrifying. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Um, and then, in reference to our last episode about horror remakes, uh, Mallory Somerville says, This was one of your best yet. Great choices, great guests, and I screamed laughing at Owen Wilson impressions. Second only to the Arnold impressions you guys do. Great job, guys. And I think Adam and I can both agree when we say, Oh, wow, it's so nice. <laughs> wow. Get out of here with that bullshit. <laughs> but no, uh, we both really like that episode, too. We definitely Absolutely. want to have Shaquille back on. Uh, Shaquille's oh, yeah. definitely coming Sha- back. Shaq's always fun. Yes. Um, and uh, we also want to thank, along with Shaquille, who was also in our intro, uh, Chris Oliver for the music he gives us uh, for the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Also, thanks to Emily Scarter for... The art that's for our show, uh, she accepts commissions over at fiverrwith2rs.com slash eescarda. And uh, we should also say that as we're uh, putting this out, uh, Adam and I are on the latest episode of The Horror Returns, where we talk about Suspiria and its remake. Suspiria. Yes, that's the way to pronounce it. That's the exact way. That's the only way to pronounce it. Exactly, yes. Um, and we haven't recorded that as we're recording this, um, but I'm sure we had a lot of fun because those guys are fun over there at the Horror Returns. Absolutely. I had the best time ever in the future. <laughs> yes. Future Adam loved it. <laughs> future Thomas, also a big fan. Uh, listen to them. They're always fun. And you can also find us, as we mentioned, on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, uh, where you can just shoot us any kind of questions or feedback, and we'll post those things about uh, relating to our topics on the Monday before those episodes come out. And we also recommend, if you have any feedback, to email us. You can do so at Bill, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And I am also on Twitter myself, at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I do some writing over at marianithomas.wordpress.com. I write reviews over there. Also, we'll probably have a Suspiria review out there um, on that particular blog spot of sorts. Uh, um, and, Nerd! Yes. And uh, Adam is shoving people into lockers on the internet. Yes. Yeah. That's absolutely. where you can find him. Um, if you act like a nerd, he'll sense you and put you in a yep. locker. Yes. Exactly. He's a, a spidey sense. <laughs> yeah, for nerds. Yes, and uh, subscribe to us also on iTunes. Rate and review us to give the show more visibility. Uh, but Adam, I think we got to go ahead and uh, show some people the life of the mind, don't we? Uh, yeah. Oh, you don't know the life of the mind? Because I'll show you the life of the mind! <laughs> Good night. Good night.